I want to have you turn, if you would, to Revelation. We're going to continue our study there in the book of Revelation in chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the scroll in the hand of a mighty angel and a scroll that John actually consumes and is afterwards sent out to preach the contents of that message. Revelation chapter 10, and I'll be reading in verse 1 and then through the end of the chapter. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, and the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn sour in your stomach, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Father, we come to you this morning and we we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your tremendous blessing that you would even allow us to hold in our hand the scriptures that teach us of what the future holds. God, you are so good to us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my mouth and speak your word. I'm always so aware of the fact that this is your flock and these are your people. And God, I need you to fill me that I might communicate your word in such a way that it has the effect that you desire this morning. To build up, to encourage, to strengthen, to exhort, God, that every man and woman and young person hearing might be desiring a deeper walk with you, loving you more fully, surrendering more completely, that we all might do your will. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Recently, as I was um, talking with some folks that I was sharing the Lord with on the beach, I I prayed for them. I enjoyed some fellowship with them. They were tourists visiting. It was down at Wailua Beach. And we got into a fairly lengthy discussion about the Lord. And in the course of talking about the Lord, they said, You know, Bob, 
we'd have a whole lot easier time believing in God if we saw His justice, if we could see Him actually taking care of evil. They had questions. For instance, why does God allow evil to go unpunished in the world? Why does God allow human suffering and death? Why doesn't He intervene in human affairs and break His apparent silence and punish the wicked? Anybody ever hear questions like that? I've heard them. And for a lot of people, it's an excuse for them not to believe in the gospel because they see evil taking place and they say if there's evil and God is all-powerful, then He must be evil Himself to not take care of these things. Therefore, I won't believe in Him. And so I began to share about Revelation and about the finality of God's judgment and what's coming. And they said, that's the other thing we don't like about the Bible. (laughs) Is that God, the God that we want to love and serve, is a God of love. And so we read in the Bible about the end times and how God will punish evil and wickedness and how God will come and, and mete out justice. And He seems so brutal, you know, that He's wiping out entire groupings of population on the earth. I mean, we've studied Revelation. A quarter of the population is first wiped out, and then another third, and that totals a half. And we've talked about that. That's over three billion people just taken us halfway through the tribulation period. And they look at that and they say, I, don't, I can't believe in a God that's that brutal. And so they get you in kind of a catch-22. They want to have a God of love, <clears throat> but when God speaks of justice in His Word, whether it's the New or Old Testament, they're horrified by bloodshed and by death. The fact is, is that God is both. A God of love, but He's a God of justice. <clears throat> and probably <clears throat> that's not clearer than in, anywhere else in the Scripture than in the book of Revelation. God will judge sin. He will judge wickedness. There is no question about it. And it is brutal. Sin and death and Satan's plan for humanity is brutal. But God holds out to any man or woman the hope of eternal life. He won't force himself on any of us, but he does hold out that hope. As we look at chapter 10 this morning, it's really an intermission in the action. And when I say action, I'm talking about the judgments of God. Between chapter, between the the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is this brief interlude or intermission where John has before him a revelation of a mighty angel with a scroll in his hand. And we'll be talking about that in some detail. In the first few verses here, he talks about this mighty angel coming down from heaven. And if you're following along in your notes, you'll you'll, uh, uh, you'll be able to see some of the things that we're talking about. But this angel with the scroll, John begins to describe. And the first question that most people have who are studiers or students of the book of Revelation is, who is this angel? We've talked about uh, uh, my approach to scripture. I just take things for straight value. What it says is what it means, is we have a mighty angel. Now, there is debate about whether this is an angel or whether it is Jesus Christ himself. And frankly, both positions can be quite well supported scripturally. Those who believe that this mighty angel that's come down from heaven that has a scroll in his hand state that Christ never called, uh, is never called an angel in the book of Revelation. And so they say, well, can't be, can't be Christ, it must be a mighty angel. And then they also say that there's no other biblical evidence that Christ comes down to earth from heaven anytime during the middle of the tribulation. And certainly that's true, at least visibly we know that's the case. 
And the third objection that people have to this being Christ is that Christ wouldn't be swearing an oath to God since he himself is God. So it doesn't make much sense for him to say, I I swear to myself. So why would this be Christ? Now, there are also those who consider this to be none other than Jesus Christ himself. And some of the, the things that they point to is if you look in the Old Testament, there are frequent references to the angel of the Lord. These are called theophanies. It's just a, it's a fancy theological term that means uh, appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. They're called pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Before he came in the flesh, Jesus Christ revealed himself not as the Son of God, but as a mighty angel of God. Now that's uh, clearly supported in Scripture. Even the New Testament identifies that angel in Israel's time, in the time of the Old Testament, as being uh, a pre-incarnate Christ. There's some other things that, uh, that point to the possibility that this mighty angel very well could be Jesus Christ. And John begins to lay out some of these points here in verse 1. He says that uh, as he's identifying and describing this mighty angel, he says he's in a, robed in a cloud. Now, interestingly, Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, in the chapter 1, as he's being described by John, is robed in a cloud. In Daniel's vision, which was, of course, of God, there was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, John goes on and he says, in addition to that, he's got a rainbow above his head. Now, that's interesting. In chapter 4 of Revelation, John is describing the King of Kings again, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne of God. We also find in Ezekiel that when Ezekiel was confronted by the Lord Almighty, that he says that he was like the appearance of a rainbow. And in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. John says that uh, this mighty angel had legs like fiery pillars. Well, if, you're, if you know your Old Testament at all, the very first thing that comes to mind when you hear fiery pillar is the pillar of fire in the book of Exodus by which God guided his people at night. And then, of course, there was a pillar of cloud by day. And so that takes us right back again to the possibility that this may be none other than Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, John again describing the appearance of Christ and he says that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, fiery. So, who is this? Is it a mighty angel or is it Jesus Christ? Well, my opinion is that it could be a mighty angel or it could be Jesus Christ. My personal thoughts, though, is that this is Jesus Christ. But I have to say that the text says a mighty angel, another mighty angel, which seems to be the one part of this that refutes the possibility of being Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, whichever it is, whether it's a mighty angel or Jesus Christ himself, This is a representative of God and is representing the Lord God Almighty in a very, very powerful way. John goes on in this passage and says that in his hand is a little scroll which lays open. Now, this scroll is different than the scroll that we studied in chapter 5, verse 1 of Revelation with the seven seals. That scroll is called a biblion. It's a book. And it's full on both sides. And in that particular case, it was sealed. Now, this book is different. It's, this is a Bibliaridian, and it's a small book. It's, a, it's like a pamphlet versus a book. It's like a magazine versus a, a whole volume of books. And, it, and it's not as detailed, and it's not sealed. It's laying open 
in the hand of this mighty angel or possibly in the hand of Jesus Christ. Again, very similar to the experience of Ezekiel the prophet when the, uh, the, uh, the Son of God came to him in, in, a, in a pre-incarnate state and in this hand uh, was, was holding the, the scroll and Ezekiel was commanded to reach out and take it and eat it in very much the same way that we're going to find John is required to eat it. And in the case of Ezekiel, it was written on both sides with laments and mourning and woe. Now, this text in Revelation doesn't tell us exactly what's written on this scroll, but it's my belief, based on the context and the material that we're looking at today, that this scroll is also uh, is containing woes and mourning and things that are devastating that are coming in the bold judgments and in the final judgments of God before His second coming. Now, this angel is also described as having one foot on the sea and one foot on land. And this is a colossal figure. This is someone that's, that's huge, that's overseeing and, and is able to put his one, fan, one foot in the ocean and seas and one foot on the continents and he's standing, planted, far above all of humanity. Amazing description of this figure. And again, I think it's Jesus Christ because Jesus is coming back to redeem and take possession of his land, of his world, of his creation. Recently, there was a national politician that many of you uh, know who was describing his view of organized religion. This is his quote. It's a sham and crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. You know, I am so privileged and we are so privileged to be a part of the body of Christ. And I have to say, I have no embarrassment at saying and confessing that I am weak and I am needy and that I need you. I don't just need the Lord, but God has also given us one another for encouragement and support and for strength and for accountability. And I treasure that and I need that. And you need that. I need your friendship and you need my friendship and we need one another's friendship and support. God has designed us to be a body. But I have to say... I, I, I have a combination of pity and humor when I hear a quote like that. Because here, John is describing this colossal figure, this giant standing above all of humanity. And here is this little speck of a man called the body Jesse Ventura, the wrestler. And I think to myself, my gosh, he's like a, a mosquito in front of a man making these kind of statements. I pray for him that he'll come to know Christ. But many people have that same view. But no matter what the world thinks about our commitment to Christ or our willingness to admit that we need a Savior and that we have sinned and that we are struggling with guilt and that we want a right relationship with God, God honors that kind of a man and that kind of a woman and He lifts them up and He exalts them no matter what the world says. And the Bible does say that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing, mocking, and it will get worse, so be prepared. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. But remember, all the while, over the heavens and the earth, there is a, a, a God, there is a Savior who can plant one foot on the continents and one foot on the oceans, and His arms are folded, and judgment is about to begin. And He is our mighty champion and our warrior. And we don't have to fight the battle. All we have to do is draw close to Him. 
and he will accomplish what he has promised. Now, John goes on and he says, having described his stance over the continents and seas, that this angel or Jesus Christ gives a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And again, this points to the possibility that this is none other than Jesus Christ. Oftentimes the angel of the Lord or the voice of God is described as a mighty lion roaring over his people, Israel. In Joel 3.16 it says that the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the sky will tremble. This is a frightening thing to hear this kind of volume and this kind of, of, a, of a roar coming from God, a shout. But for the believer there's nothing to fear because it says that the Lord will be a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the people of Israel. Now right after this, something very unusual happens that I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about. As soon as the King of Kings shouts and roars, having planted a foot on the continents and having planted another foot on the seas, taking possession of what is his at the very beginning of his taking possession, and he just shouts. There's something interesting happens because we've got in the text here a description by John of voices of the seven thunders speaking. These seven thunders speak and when the seven thunders spoke, John was about to write down what he heard, but a voice from heaven said to him, John, don't write it. Seal it up. So the first question is, who are these seven thunders? Well, we're not exactly sure. Some have suggested that it might be an allusion to Psalm uh, 29, 3-9 where we find actually a sevenfold description of God shouting and declaring His judgment over the world during the time of the flood. That's a possibility, but frankly, we don't know. If somebody says they know who the seven thunders are, they don't really know because no one knows who these seven thunders are. And the mystery deepens because John is about to write what he heard. Remember in John chapter 1, Jesus Christ Himself appointed John to write down everything and take it to the seven churches. And so John is doing his duty and he hears, these, he hears the, the, the roaring and the shout of, of, uh, of Christ or an angel and he begins to write down what he wrote and then immediately he hears this amazing noise of these seven thunders. And obviously for John he's able to understand it because he's about to transcribe what was, what was heard. So he's just putting his pen to paper and all of a sudden a voice comes from heaven. John, don't do it. Seal it up. Seal means to actually to keep it a secret. This vision that John had was to be sealed. Now, I'm just a tad frustrated by this text because I'm thinking to myself, the next question I have is that, okay, no problem. You know, God's going to seal it up and we're not going to know what it is, obviously. And people try to pursue it. My, my advice to you, don't even bother wasting any time. I'm kind of wasting too much time on this already. But it's interesting to me. And I'm thinking to myself, why would God reveal the, the fact that the seven thunders even said anything and kind of you know, hang that tidbit out in front of us and then say, you can't know what that is. And John, don't tell anybody what it is. Well, I don't think it's... Uh, uh, there are a couple possibilities in my mind. One is that if you remember John, um, it may have been that this message was just for John. It may have been just for John. It wouldn't be the first time. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians? Uh, he was caught up in the, in the heavens and the scripture says that he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. 
And so there are things that Paul saw when he went up to the third heaven that he couldn't tell because God wouldn't permit him to speak those things. Now, this is my theory, okay? And then we'll move on to things that are less theoretical and, 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 uh, uh, and more concrete in terms of what the Bible says. My guess is that when these seven thunders, who we don't really know who they are, see the Son of God planting His feet on this earth to begin to take possession of it, and He shouts and roars and thunders a victory of the beginning of the redemption of the world, I think these seven thunders lose it. I think these seven thunders all of a sudden explode in praise. And I think they start declaring things that were meant only for God to know and for those in the future who would know. And I think, could be wrong, I'm imagining this possibility that as Jesus Christ takes claim to what rightfully belongs to Him, they start declaring the power and the worship and the mysteries of God and they're a little out of line. They got so excited. It's possible. And so God tells them, John, these guys, are, these guys are right. Everything they said is true but they're a little overzealous today. Seven thunders calm down. Those things aren't meant for man to know yet. And he says, John, I don't want you to write it down. That's not for people to know. I want you to seal that up. Thunders, thanks. You're on the right track and everything but it's not time yet. Okay, does that make sense to you? It's a possibility. It makes the most sense to me. And just praying through this, I, that's kind of the conclusion I came to because again, if you look in the praises that take place, and we're going to see another one next week. Next week is going to be great as we look at chapter 11. But as you look at the praises, you see these people just exploding in worship. You see different things taking place. Remember when the Lamb took the scroll out of, out of the hand of God? No one else was worthy. What happened? All of heaven went off. They just went ballistic with worship and praise for God. And a domino effect, it affected the whole of the court of God. And all of the angels were joining in. And so I imagine as God is finally, finally, finally taking possession of what rightfully belongs to Him, that these seven thunders, just, they just can't hold back. And one of the seven thunders starts and the others join in. And they all get maybe a little tiny rebuke from God. And John is, is, uh, is told not to communicate those things. You know, there's a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 29.29 that I think answers this mystery to some degree, at least to my satisfaction. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So there's certain things that we will not know and don't know. But for myself... I have to say that what this Bible contains is plenty enough to keep me busy for a whole lifetime learning and studying and absorbing and assimilating and applying. You've heard it said probably more than once that if we never heard another sermon and never heard another tape and never read another book and just applied what we knew, we could be godly men and women. And I believe that's fairly true except for somebody who's a brand new believer. So these seven thunders are are speaking and John is forbidden from revealing to us what this what their words were what their message was and then John begins to describe something very unusual this angel in verse 5 that John had seen standing on the sea and on the land raises his right hand to heaven now this lifting of the hand as it's really in the Greek is actually a, an oath taking that, that this angel is 
participating in. It's actually, uh, you know, so many things in our culture we actually derive from the Bible and we don't even know. But this actually comes from the Bible. All the way back in Genesis we have uh, Abraham taking an oath with his right hand. And by the way, interestingly enough, we find God taking oaths regularly with his right hand. And so this angel, or Jesus Christ as I believe it is, is raising his right hand and he's about to swear an oath. And this is exactly what we do in the court of law. You know, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, um, Mother Earth, and which way are we going now? I don't know. But, but the fact is, is that uh, the, the, that whole swearing ceremony with your left hand on the Bible and right hand up was that you were swearing to someone greater than yourself. And that would be God. And so this angel lifts his hand in preparation to declare an oath. Now in Deuteronomy, again, we have God saying, See that I myself am He, there is no God besides me. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, As surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and the hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. And so God is taking an oath, making a commitment that He will follow through on bringing justice to the earth. Now I find it interesting in verse 6 that He says again that God created the heavens and all that's in them and the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it. It's like he can't get off this subject of God, the sea, the earth, and the creation. And I think what, this, what Jesus Christ in this case, or an angel, is trying to communicate is that it all belongs to him. The seas and everything in it. The earth and everything in it. The heavens and everything in them all belong to God. They are His. And Jesus Christ, in my mind's eye, is standing over the, over the earth with His arms folded in a victory shout. And He's saying, it all belongs to me. I find that so encouraging. Because I'm thinking to myself, there's so much injustice and so many things wrong in this earth. But one day, not from long, long from now, God will correct and punish and restore And the, this, uh, this figure, this angel or Christ says that there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is this inter- interlude, this intermission of sorts. But when the seventh trumpet sounds, the scripture says there will be no more delay. Delay in what? Delay in the final purposes of God for this earth. I was thinking about these things and I, I was reflecting on the fact that the earth belongs to God, the heavens belong to God, everything in them belongs to God, and yet they don't seem to really be under His authority, if you know what I mean. In fact, Scripture goes so far as to say that Satan is the God of this world. Now, how in the world did God allow Satan to get a hold of this world in such a powerful way that in finality he is going to actually have to destroy it and start over? Well, we know from Scripture that in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a tremendous amount of authority. In fact, what God created and had under his authority solely, he shared and distributed that authority to Adam and Eve. And they, in turn had authority over the earth. They could name the animals. All the animals were in submission to them. I mean, they were in control. 
But, as you know, that authority was forfeited by the deception of the enemy. And so, Adam and Eve, in a very foolish decision, which has affected all of us, gave away what God had given to them. And they had the authority to give it away. And so the earth and, its, and its, uh, all that's in it and, and a lot of the authority in it was given away to the enemy. And that's why Satan can offer to Jesus Christ during his 40 days of temptation the possibility of all the kingdoms of the earth. How could Satan give something he didn't have authority over? But he gave it to him and he had the authority because it had been usurped and handed over by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And now Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem and to restore what once was lost. And he himself will stand like a mighty warrior over the earth and over the affairs of man and give a loud, mighty shout like the roar of a lion and take back what truly belongs to him. Now John describes this final chapter as a mystery. What is he talking about when he says the mystery of God? What's he referring to? Well, I think that there are a few clues here. In the Greek, if you look at uh, the fact that this mighty angel or Jesus Christ announced to his servant, the prophet, this word announced is euangelion. It's the word, actually in the text it's euangelizo. But it means to proclaim good news. That's what this means. In fact, when you see the disciples preaching the gospel, it is euangelizo or euangelion, which is the proclamation of good news. And in this case, specifically, uh, with the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus Christ and his redemption of man and the earth. And so this word very specifically is chosen that we might know it has something to do with good news and quite possibly with the good news of salvation in Christ. We also know in the last part of verse 7 that this has been previously announced to his servants, the prophets. So the prophets of the Old Testament have been communicating about these things in the word of God. And so we're like, okay, we clue in and we say, okay, it's, it's good news and it's something that they've already told us about. Well, I think there are four things that I've listed for you in your, in your notes, if you're following along, that have a part to do with this mystery. The first part of this mystery is the coming of Christ himself. In Colossians 2, Paul says that my purpose is that they may know the mystery of God. What's the mystery of God? He says, namely, Christ. Christ is the mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why is Christ a mystery? Well, I'll tell you why he's a mystery. Who in their right mind would have ever been able to conceive of a script where God would become a baby? Where God would come to earth in the form of a man to save a rebellious people? Who would have ever thought of that? Do you know why? And do you know what? In all the other religions in the world, there is no story like this. It's the greatest story ever told. In every other religion, they have these powerful deities that are you know, throwing down thunderbolts on people and judging them and, and causing them to have to, to live a certain way and do certain things to not incur their wrath and to gain their blessing and favor. None other than Jesus came in the flesh. That, before he came, was a mystery. They couldn't understand how it could possibly be. So much so that when he came, they had trouble recognizing him. Another aspect of this mystery, I believe, is found in Luke 24, the redemption of man through the cross of Christ. This was such a mystery that even the disciples of Christ on the road, you remember the story, Jesus has suffered, died, 
resurrected, and he's walking along the road, and he runs into two disciples. And they're talking, and he's saying, hey, what's new, guys? Anything happening? You know, any new news in, the, in town lately? And they said, my gosh, where have you been? You living in a shoebox somewhere? I mean, how could you not have heard? Did you hear about Christ? And his death and his promises and how he was leading so many and gave us such hope. But then he was murdered and died on the cross and we don't know what to do. And Jesus says to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms. This wasn't something hidden, but they couldn't see it because it was so fantastic and so unbelievable that they couldn't connect the dots and make this work in their minds. But Jesus, at that point, the Bible says, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Understand what? Understand the mystery of how man could be redeemed through a wooden cross. And he told them, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That was the mystery of the cross. Who would have ever imagined? Who would have ever believed that sinful, rebellious man and our broken relationship with God could have been remedied by one man going to his death unjustly on a cross? Who would have ever thought of that? Who would have ever imagined something like that? No one. It was a mystery. Do you know what the Old Testament is about? Can I tell you in a nutshell? It's about Christ. The whole Old Testament is nothing but a preparation to help us understand the mystery of Christ. The people of Israel, the sacrifices, the temple, it's all to help us be ready to receive and understand the mystery of Christ and Him crucified Who would have ever believed that a man or a woman simply by saying, I'm a sinner and I believe you, can you forgive me, could have eternal life and a reconciled relationship with God? It was a mystery. There's another part of this mystery in Acts 3 that I believe is the restoration of all things. Luke says that Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His prophets. That was a mystery. How in the world was God going to restore everything? Well, He was going to do it through Christ, who is the mystery. The fourth point that I have here, and certainly there are probably some others, but these are the ones that the Lord brought to my mind, is the long-awaited reign of Christ. We're told in Ephesians by Paul that God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment no no more delay at the, the sounding of these trumpets to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This goes back to the the purpose that God had from the beginning of time that He would rule and reign over a people that would be submitted and in love with Him. This is fantastic. I hear people often say, oh, I wish I could have been living back in the time of Jesus or I wish I could have seen the Red Sea part and I'm thinking, man, blessings on you, brother. I'm glad I am where I am. 
We have more information and more knowledge and more of the understanding of the Word of God than any generation, than any time, than any people in history. We are blessed beyond measure because the mysteries, many of them, have already been revealed to us. And of course, as John says, that it's declared through his servants, the prophets, and Amos tells us that God does nothing without revealing it and his plan to his servants, the prophets. Why? Because God wants us informed. God wants us to know. Do you know that God wants you to know him? God wants you to love him. God wants you to know what the future holds so that you can live for things that matter instead of for things that don't. You see, Satan wants to absorb every minute you've got in things that won't last. And for many of us, he's successful. And God is giving you a look into the future and he's saying, live for what matters. Live for the things that count. For things that last. For things that endure. For things that honor him. And so John, I'm imagining as he's watching all this, this has got to be beyond words for him. To even try to write this on paper is is phenomenal. He had to be inspired by God to do it. But then something very unusual happens in verse 8. We find a voice who he had heard from heaven that had spoken to him before say, Go and take the scroll that lies in the open hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so this voice comes to him and says, John, I want you to go and I want you to take the scroll out of the hand of Christ or a mighty angel. We're not quite sure which it is, but I'll say Jesus Christ. I want you to take that scroll. It's not sealed. It's open. You can read it. You can participate in it. And I want you to eat it. Now this is pretty bizarre. I mean, we're so used to Scripture and hearing the, you know, the prophecies of Ezekiel and Ezekiel eating the Word of God and Jeremiah eating the Word of God and it being sweet to their heart, to their taste. But... Imagine reading this for the first time and having to eat a scroll. This is very strange and unusual. It reminds me of my dog, <laughs> Christy. We had a golden retriever way back on, on, the, on the mainland in New York. And uh, I'll never forget one time coming in. Uh, I had a place in, in the house, a room that I had my quiet times and my study times. And I'd left my Bible open on the, on the counter. And this was a puppy. Uh, and she came in there and... You know, I found her devouring First and Second Kings, and uh, for for years I had to go to I had to have two Bibles so I could have First and Second Kings, and I still have that Bible. And you can see her teeth marks in my Bible as she just ripped and tore. And I, you know, my Bible was all over the. But it's not normal for us to think about consuming or ingesting the Word of God. But this angel tells him that he wants him to actually eat it. And this word "eat" is interesting. In the Greek, it's to eat down or devour to make its contents completely your own and to take them into your innermost being. You know, you may have heard the old, uh, the old saying that you are what you eat. Anybody ever hear that before? Uh, well, actually it's true, believe it or not, because our bodies in a very miraculous way are able to, to digest and to uh, metabolize and to assimilate the energy that we can get from food. Some of it goes for just uh, running the basic parts of our human body. Some of it goes for uh, muscle structure, for bone structure. But all of it is, becomes actually a part of us. We, fortunately, in God's wisdom, He enabled us to turn low-octane food like hamburgers and french fries into a high, high-octane body. I don't know how He managed it. But He actually is able to, to take crummy food that's not really all that good for us and turn it into something useful for us. And... 
what, what the angel is saying, I think to us as well, that we can apply to our lives, is that, is that God is holding out the word to us even today. And he's saying, look, I want you to take it out of my hand. And I want you to read it. And I want you to study it. And I want you to grow from it. And I want you to mature from it. And I want you to, to develop in such a way that you are able to reproduce yourself. And to fill my kingdom and my earth with men and women just like you who are becoming more and more like Christ every day because that's my plan for your life. I know a lot of times people, when it comes to the Word of God, feel like, gee, I'm so busy. You know, I've got, you don't understand. The kids have soccer practice and then we've got, you know, we've got baseball and I've got, I've got three babies. You know, I've got infants. I've got, you know, I'm holding two jobs. We just got a house. I'm doing, you know, the yard. I mean, I just... I can't have, I don't have time. As much as I want to and I know I need to, I, I just don't have time to spend in the Word every day. Nobody here has ever said anything like that before, I'm sure. But there, was, there were times in my life where I said that. And, I, and, and I've had mothers especially come to me who have two or three kids that are in the infant area stage and, and they're like, what do I do? Well, you know, we have godly examples from the past like John Wesley's mother, Charles Wesley's mother who just threw her her apron over her head right in the middle of her house and prayed and worshipped right in the midst of I think she had over a dozen kids but the opportunity is there he holds the word out and he says I don't want you to just know it I don't want you to just kind of be familiar with it I don't want you to just hear it from uh, your pastor on Sunday or listen to a tape or a Christian radio on occasion I want you to ingest it I want you to, to be so familiar with it and to have it penetrate your heart so deeply that you become a changed man or a changed woman as a result of having had contact with the Word of God. That's God's purpose for all of us. That we would know His Word and that we would become what we eat. Now this angel is very nice because he did something that uh, you know, I'm kind of surprised by, frankly. He tells John in advance that it's going to give him a stomachache. He says, go take the scroll and eat it. And so he went and took the scroll and he asked, John asked the angel, or in this case possibly Jesus Christ, for the scroll. And he said to him, take it and eat it and it's going to turn sour in your stomach, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Now I don't know about you, but if I went to your house for dinner and you told me, Bob, man, this food is killer. You're going to love how it tastes, but you're going to have a stomach ache for probably a week. Well, you know, I, I would probably decline. And I'd say, thank you very much for letting me know. I'm sure it's delicious and I'll enjoy watching you eat it. But I really am not interested in being sick to my stomach by eating the meal you prepared. I don't want to offend you at all, but thanks. No thanks. Right? Wouldn't you do the same thing? Some of you have eaten something in the past that were bad for you. I'll never forget the time I had a, a, a can of tamales just before my wife went into labor. And then I went into labor for almost the same length of time she went into labor. And I thought I'm never going to eat a can, a can of tamales again, and I haven't. And so John is being forewarned that this scroll is actually going to make him sick, but he's to eat it anyway. And I have to tell you something about John. There are many times in the scriptures where we find different men of God, like Moses, for instance, being commanded by the Lord to respond to him, to do his will. And Moses is, but, 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 you know. But not John. John knows he's going to get sick. But he goes right up to Jesus Christ and he says, I think that's for me. 
and he munches that thing right down. Very similar to Ezekiel, who was commanded by God in Ezekiel chapter 3. The Lord said to him, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. And so Ezekiel says, I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And then he said, Son of man, go and preach to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And so as Ezekiel was going in verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. Why? Because the word that God had for His people was a word of judgment, a word of heavy rebuke, and a word of punishment. And I think in the same way, John is going and speaking the word of God, being commissioned to faithfully, faithfully proclaim the word of God, but he doesn't take pleasure in it. It makes his stomach sour. It turns his stomach inside out to have to speak and record and write down what God is about to do through the seven bold judgments, which are the most terrifying of any of the judgments in the book of Revelation. You know, I think to myself that in a very small way, but in a parallel fashion, the Word of God I've experienced to be bitter and sweet in my life too. And maybe you can relate. I think the Word of God, when it talks of the love of God, when it talks about the mercy of God and especially the grace of God, when He talks about the future and the hope that He's given us and promised us in, in, in the Word, when He talks about the mansions that He's preparing for us and the, and the place that He wants us to, to take and in His inheritance in Christ, when you look at the, the promises in the book of Ephesians of the inheritance that we have in the Lord, it's phenomenal. And I look at that and I say, oh, that is so sweet. When I read the Psalms, when I'm discouraged or weighted down by some difficulty in my life, and they, and they just give me hope and encouragement, knowing that God will never leave me or forsake me. Those are really sweet words. But then also, the Word of God speaks directly to areas in my life that may require change. Sometimes there are things in my life that are just not right. And I know it. And God speaks to me. And I'm just like, oh, sour, sour. I just, give me the sweet stuff. You know, maybe some of you are struggling with things like immorality. An immoral relationship. And God has been speaking to you. You know it's wrong. And you've been fighting Him. And you, oh, give me the loving, sweet Jesus. You know, but don't rebuke me because I'm not going to change. Maybe you're impatient. Maybe you're a strident person, somebody who's harsh and angry with a spouse or with a co-worker. And you know that's not right. You know that that's not godly. And God speaks to you about it through a message or a sermon or through your own reading and you're like, oh, sour, sour. Give me something sweet again. Or dishonesty or something in your life where you know God is speaking. But I will tell you something. Is that whether you receive the message of God as something sweet in your mouth or something that tastes sour or turns sour in your stomach, I want to encourage you that God's word is always redemptive. And if you will respond to him in those areas that he's speaking to you, God will lift you up and God will exalt you and God will honor you and God will bless you if you do as well. But it's called costly discipleship. And not everyone is game. There are many Christians who want to follow the Lord but only so far. They want to feel that they've got Salvation promised and inherited and they want to feel like they got a buddy relationship with God but when it comes to obedience or, or sacrificing or laying down their life or living for things that really matter in the future for the eternal purposes of God for evangelizing, for praying, for worshipping for just loving Him and spending blocks of time with Him just like you would a friend 
well then it's like I don't want quite that much of them see God wants everything he wants it all but I'm telling you if you're a Christian there is no more there's no greater or more joyous or wonderful experience than walking with the Lord that way if you are thinking you're saving yourself and giving yourself joy by shortcutting God I'm going to clue you in right now you are cheating yourself and you're falling into the deception of the enemy because there's no greater joy than walking closely daily intimately with Jesus Christ now John finishes this text by talking about his commissioning verse 11 he was told you must prophesy again about many peoples nations languages and kings and so once again John is commissioned to prophesy which takes us back to the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel and the word of God to Ezekiel is that you want, he wanted him to go as his ambassador to speak the word of God his judgment against his own people Ezekiel did it Jeremiah did it and now John in recording it for us is doing it and so John in faithfulness to the mission of God proclaims the entire word of God and I have to tell you that as a pastor I am sobered by the responsibility I have to declare this word to you every week because I am obligated by God to tell you everything it says not just the things that make you feel good but also the things that you need to hear the things that are corrective that sometimes are rebuke but it's God's love and God's design and God's purpose for me to do that and so I do it to the best of my ability because you are God's flock and man I'm telling you every time I I'm on my way to church and even all week as I'm preparing the messages I'm constantly thinking God these are your people I've got to do my very best for your glory I want to be just like Jesus as I speak and teach and I want my words to be your words and so I pray all the time for that and I ask you to pray for me for that too because I want only his words to be communicated to you that you might be equipped and built up appropriately and properly but I think also the scripture makes it clear that it's not just my role and it's not just John's role but every believer is obligated before God to be an ambassador for Christ he has made you his spokesman or his spokeswoman and it's a great honor and a great privilege but if you want to do that you must take the word of God and you must take it and you must eat it and you must consume it and you must assimilate it in your life and you must allow it to percolate and permeate and enter every part of your being and your life and your decisions and when you do then God will have a message for you to speak and you will have power and you will have effect and the kingdom will be furthered and advanced God doesn't want us to be weak believers he doesn't want us to be anemic spiritually but he will not force feed even one I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for you and praying for us as a church that we would be men and women like John who wouldn't say but, 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 but yeah, I got all these things but we would see that word of God and we'd say my gosh this is a mystery that the word of God is in our hands physically and we can read it and know it I want to know everything in it and I want to apply it we become what we eat I encourage you this week to feed on the precious word of God and let God use you to be his spokesperson 
in a world that is dying and lost, but one day, not long from now, will be redeemed by our mighty warrior and king, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we give you all glory and praise and honor. And we announce and confess and declare once again our love for you. Thank you for reminding us in your word what kind of men and women we need to be. God, help us to be men and women who consume and assimilate and devour and eat down the word of God that it might build us and make us the kind of men and women that are useful in your hand. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.